are going to talk about tested faith today. Tested faith. And in fact, as we've been on a journey with our hero, Abraham, we have discovered that all throughout Abraham's walk with Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the, the, the chosen deliverer, uh, God has tested Abram's faith. From Ur, exiting Ur of the Chaldees, to entering the land of Canaan, to uh, following uh, a band of kings and an army to rescue his nephew Lot, to worshiping at the feet of a priest king named Melchizedek, to receiving the promise of God uh, solidified by God himself, um, with a blood sacrifice of a son and a seed to come to understanding that truth to be through his wife, Sarah. And when his body was as good as dead, he by faith trusted in God, and God delivered uh, by giving him a child named Isaac, or laughter. And here we are at chapter 22. All things are going really well for our hero, Abraham. He has obeyed God He's followed God. He's even done the hard thing when his eyes did not see God's blessing. Um, he trusted that God would deliver and save and rescue his, his firstborn son, Ishmael, that he was not the son of promise. He would trust God and trust his wife, Sarah. He would let Ishmael depart, and he would see God deliver Ishmael at a place called Beersheba, where Abraham would have already made a covenant with Abimelech, the king of Philistia, in the Gaza Strip, by the way, um, where he would deliver uh, his son Ishmael and Hagar, uh, and we would see this journey already. This is where we are in the journey, and what we find is in the story and the narrative of our hero Abraham and Sarah and Isaac that there is tested faith in this, in this walk, this life, but God often tests our faith. So I don't want us to walk through the story and dig deeply into the narrative so we walk out of here and we get a history lesson. What I much would rather have is as we walk out of here today, we understand that the tested faith is God testing our faith. And so as we look at verses 1 to 19, we are going to see some characteristics of tested faith. In fact, we're going to ask that question, what characteristics of genuine faith and by that we mean a faith that withholds nothing from God, but rather sacrifices everything for him. Okay, so by, by this, this passage reveals to us that genuine faith is a faith that withholds nothing from God, but rather sacrifices everything for him. Okay, so what characteristics of this genuine faith does the text reveal? We're going to ask and answer that question today as we look at the text. So let's read the text, and then I'm going to introduce it further. Um, and remember, as I often say when we read the text, um, this is pretty much the most important part of the message. Uh, let me, let me uh, mention to you just briefly, I know it's been my habit to preach through the entire chapter. Um, what, we, what we see in verses 20 to the end of the chapter is actually uh, an introduction to the next progenitor that is going to follow, Isaac, the chosen seed, is going to need a wife. And so what we find in verses 20 and following, that is the narrator's segue into switching from an emphasis on Abraham and Sarah to switching to an emphasis on Isaac. So I will bring that back up. Um, it really won't require a message. It'll just be acknowledgement when we get to chapter 23 that, by the way, chapter 22 ends with the heritage of Abraham's brother Nahor and how Abraham would send his servant to find a wife from his own family. And that family lineage is laid out here at the end of chapter 20. So it's the narrator's storytelling method of showcasing a transition from Isaac, from Abraham to Isaac, okay? So I'm not going to preach on those verses today. I'm going to focus on the main body of the narrative in verses 1 to 19. So let's take a look at them, and then I'm going to introduce the message, and we're going to hit the ground running. Are you ready? Let's do it. Genesis chapter 22. Now it came to pass, after these things, that God tested Abraham. Let me pause for a second. Verse 33 where is Abraham? Verse 33 of the previous chapter. Abraham is where? Beersheba. Okay. God has already shown himself to be deliverer at Beersheba. 
The whole point of this Abimelech dialogue at the end of the chapter was that he made a covenant with Abimelech. He plants a tamarisk tree to, to basically say, look, my faith has taken root. I am rooted and grounded now. This land is mine. Is that not fascinating that Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, would actually claim the land of Philistia at Beersheba, where Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, would, would reside? Gaza is under dispute today. But according to the biblical text, Gaza belongs to Abraham and his descendants, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. It should not be a disputed territory. It belongs to God's people. All right? I know that's a controversial statement, according to some. Uh, quote, Palestinians, you can see where Philistia, Philistines, Palestinians comes from. This is disputed territory. Abraham plants a tree. He makes a pact with Abimelech. Abimelech says, all of this belongs to you. You can dwell in this land. God already gave it to him anyway. And this is where he is, at Beersheba. And I'm going to see, as we walk through the text in chapter 21, excuse me, chapter 22, we're going to see that he begins and he ends in the same place. Again, God's divine stamp of authoritative proof that Israel owns this land. This belongs to Israel. All right, so let's keep reading. God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off, and Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. I love that word, yonder. Very southern. Anyway, verse 6. So Abraham took the word, excuse me, took the wood of the burnt offering and said, or excuse me, boy, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? for a burnt offering. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of or in place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abram, Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. 
and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. May God add a blessing to the portion of the reading of his word. Today, we're going to discuss the topic of tested faith. And as we asked the question earlier, what characteristics of tested faith do we see in the text or of genuine faith, that is a faith that withholds nothing from God, but rather sacrifices everything for him? And as we ask and answer that question, I'd like to uh, jump in introduction to sort of give an overview of where we've been again. Now, our journey through Abraham's narrative these past weeks has been a roller coaster ride of emotion. There's lots of highs and lots of lows. We noted in chapter 19 that faith in God requires us to reject faith in self. Even though we are made righteous by God through faith, we still have a responsibility to reject our natural, sinful, self-deceived schemes of life and respond in genuine faith in God in the midst of life's critical circumstances. Chapter 19 made that very clear. In chapter 20, we saw our hero, Abraham, struggle with the begetting, besetting sin of doubt that led to manipulation and human control. When we give in to our desire to control our circumstances, we attempt to circumvent God's way to get what we want, God's rewards. Abraham's story then reminded us that God's promises can only be procured or received God's way. God is not just interested in our outward display of righteousness. He is interested in our genuine heart change as we conform to his image and we bend to his will. By the time we completed then our journey last week in chapter 21, we saw that the capstone of Abraham's actions revealed a key to his heart motivation. After the early events of chapter 21 that revealed Abraham's heart-wrenching decision to trust God through Sarah's suggestion to send Ishmael and Hagar on their way, the latter events, the second part of that chapter, uh, highlighted the fruits of his budding faith to do things God's way and receive God's reward. And I can't imagine uh, the heart-rending response of Abraham, you know, having to, sorry guys, I, I'm tripping over this cord, uh, having to um, essentially say goodbye to his son that he has spent the last 16 years nurturing, teaching, and loving. And yet Abraham knew through the eyes of faith that this was not the son of promise. He was not the seed, that God was to give him a seed through Sarah and indeed had given him a seed. So last week we saw Abraham had to step out by faith and do things God's way. And that was hard. It was a hard decision. So, all of this active faith displayed is rooted in what Abraham has come to know about God's character. So, as we ended last week and we saw Abraham naming God, essentially Abraham calls God, uh, God the everlasting one whose plans cannot be thwarted and whose promises can be trusted. So we noted last week that God wants to strengthen your faith and my faith. He wants to strengthen our faith in him as we rely on his everlasting nature and as we root our faith in his character. So today, we see in Genesis 21, 1-19, that Abraham's faith was tested to the extreme. Now, I, I read this as sort of nonchalantly and casually as one might read a story, but I don't know if it struck you the same way it struck me every time I read it of how atrocious this scenario plays out. And I don't want it to be trite or casual as we look at Abraham's obedience and we understand what God was actually asking him to do. I want us to kind of dive into the depth of what this was teaching Abraham and what it reveals to us. And so, as Abraham's faith was tested to the extreme, we saw uh, it is all said and done. When it's all said and done, uh, the patriarch was asked to sacrifice his most valuable possession to prove his genuine and exclusive love for God that is displayed through faith's actions. God was calling Abraham to sacrifice his most valuable possession. And so, what we find today 
is that the two main characters in this story will reveal to us characteristics of genuine faith or faith that withholds nothing from God, but rather sacrifices everything for him. As we walk through the narrative, we will discover this truth today. Genuine faith withholds nothing and thus sacrifices everything for God. So my question then to you today, a question I've had to wrestle with this week, what does the testing of your faith reveal about you? Are you a man or a woman who is producing the genuine faith of a righteousness applied to you that has sacrificed everything, is withholding nothing? That's the big question of the hour. And so we're going to see three characteristics today. And the first one we will note is that genuine faith proceeds immediately. Now, what we see in this text is that genuine faith proceeds uh, immediately in obedience or obediently. So in Genesis 22, 1 to 6, I want you to note again the text, and I want you to see with me um, what, what is highlighted here. We find, and by the way, just for, this is another one of those free, I've studied it, maybe you'll find it fun. Um, Genesis chapter 12, when God sends Abram, Abram, A-B-R-A-H-M, or A-B-R-H-A-M, out of Ur, it follows the same technical pattern that's followed here. This is a parallel. When God first tested Abram to send him out of Ur, God now would finally test Abram to send him to sacrifice everything and withhold nothing. So it's an interesting parallel. That's free for you who want to go back to chapter 12 and see. Uh, but this dialogue between God and Abram becomes an exact parallel in this passage. So what we want to see then, again, look at verses 1 to 6. It comes to pass after these things, after the events of sending Ishmael away, as it turns out, we're going to find, uh, we, we, we believe, based on the way the narrative lays it out and the timetable here, that Isaac is probably between the age of 16 and 20, okay? Um, 18 would be a nice round number, uh, but he's certainly no spring chicken, okay? This is not a small child. Isaac is a young man, and of course, in Jewish, Jewish ethnic heritage, at 13, he would have been considered a man, so even were he 13, this is a, a man with a free will walking with his father to sacrifice in the desert, but I believe he's somewhere between the age of 16 and 20 in this passage. So we find God speaking to Abram, Abraham. Abraham answers immediately. Now, what does he do immediately? He doesn't hesitate. Immediately he obeys. You see, genuine faith that withholds nothing and sacrifices everything, always proceeds in obedience. When God calls us to do something, faith obeys that call. Now, like Abraham, we often are on that journey, and our levels of obedience come with levels of maturity, do they not? But here in the text, we find our hero of the faith coming to full maturity and displaying for us what a mature man or woman in life and ministry would, would do and choose when presented with God's call on their life. Faith proceeds obediently. And here what we find then is there's no doubt, no doubt whatsoever that Abraham's genuine faith acted immediately even when he couldn't reconcile what God's ask in his mind. You know what I mean there, right? In other words, Abraham, he's having a hard time. The, the only hesitation, in fact, the only hesitation we might see here is the order of logic. I mean, look at the text again. He says, here am I. God says, take your only son. By the way, all throughout this text, I hope you see the, the, love, the love that is infused into the story. He essentially says, take your son, your only son. Okay. Now, by the way, did Abraham have another son? He did. His name was Ishmael. Why is the text emphasizing his only son? And the answer, of course, is this is the seed. This is the son of promise. This is the only 
means of deliverance, the only means of obedient blessing. Without Isaac, there is no promise of blessing. Okay? Uh, so he says, take your only son and offer him on Mount Moriah as a burnt offering on the mountains. So notice he, he essentially says, I want you to offer him as a sincere sacrifice of worship. Now, again, before we get into the details, let me just describe to you what a burnt offering is like, and I'm going to do it with an animal because I don't want to think of it the other way. A burnt offering would have been taking a lamb, um, that, would be, that would have been the most common, or an ox, that would have been another common way. But uh, for a three-day journey and hiking up a steep mountain, no doubt they would have taken a lamb or a goat. Uh, it would have been a yearling. It would have been a spotless. Uh, when they got it there, they would have bound its feet together, so tied its feet, so two sets of ties, right? Um, they would have laid it appropriately on the altar. He would have immediately uh, slit the lamb's throat for a quick uh, and immediate death. And then... As sacrifices were, he would have quartered the animal, cleaned it, taken its parts, poured the blood on the altar on top of its parts, and burned it to ash. That was a burnt sacrifice. That was a burnt offering. The entirety of the animal was entirely burned in sacrifice to God. Now, in the burnt offering process, Generally, the lamb was, was, was chosen as a substitute. So um, what later on, we'd find in Israel's history real legislation for that. Um, if, you were, if you missed my 9 a.m. Um, study in Exodus, you missed a blessing today talking about the tabernacle and the one entrance in. But to get into the holy place or into the outer courtyard, you had to bring a lamb. You would then place your hand on the head of the lamb, and you would say, um, essentially, in essence, I am transferring the sin, my personal sin, the sin of my family, the sin of my clan, and the sin of my tribe, depending on who you were, uh, whether you were a head honcho in the tribe or you're just in charge of your family, transferring my sin debt to this lamb. And then that lamb would be taken at the gate of the outer courtyard from you by a priest. You would never get to go in. You don't get to go in. There has to be a representative, a priest, that is your substitute, uh, your intermediary, and will take your substitute, your sin substitute, the lamb. And that intermediary, the priest, goes into the outer courtyard and will do what I just said to the lamb. Sprinkle its blood on the horns of the altar, the four corners of the altar, quarter it, uh, and burn it thoroughly on your behalf. So the intermediary priest will take your substitutionary sacrifice and burn it fully as an acceptable offering to the Lord. This is what God is asking Abraham to do. Let that sink in for a moment. Take your son, your one and only beloved son. Take him to Mount Moriah. And there I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. What does Abraham do? He obeys. I don't know about you, but that catches me. That, that puts a lump in my throat. Makes me think pretty deeply about that ask. If I were intellectually uh, thinking thoroughly about that ask, and I were Abraham, I might pause, just being honest. But Abraham doesn't pause. If anything could be considered a pause, uh, think about it this way. And guys, you understand this. You, you've been given a task by God. You know what you need to do. You know it's a really hard task. And so what do you do? You go to a part of the task that's going to allow you to think about your next steps a little bit before you have to do the really hard part. That's kind of what he does here. He goes and he kind of gets his donkey ready. He t tells his servants, hey, uh, guys, get ready. We're going to go on a trip. So he's, he's saddling his donkey. He's getting provisions together. Takes a deep breath. What do you need for a burnt offering? Wood. Then he goes and he gets the, the quintessential essential. And he, he prepares the wood for the offering. Now, logically, what's the most important thing for a burnt offering? Is it to prepare your donkey? 
with your provisions on the road? No, it's to get the wood ready. You can't have a burnt offering without something to burn. Are you following me? So in other words, it's not that he didn't obey right away, but you can see that this is definitely a process of thought here. He chose to immediately obey God, but he, he thought through this in preparation. There's no doubt he acted immediately. The only hesitation would be possibly construed in the out-of-order preparation, saddling his donkey before chopping the wood. However, there is no doubt that his genuine faith acted immediately, even when he couldn't reconcile God's ask in his mind. Do you respond to God immediately when he's tugging at your heart? Has he called you to vocational ministry? or to a layman's life of a disciple-making, but you're holding out for something bigger or better or maybe even easier. Christian, your faith must proceed immediately in obedience. Don't waver. Don't hesitate. Don't be a two-souled man or woman who is unstable in all your ways. This is what we've been learning in youth group. This is what we've been learning in men's Bible study. The unstable believer is someone who is not singularly focused on loving God and loving others, but is dually focused on pleasing self and satisfying self while trying to walk the tightrope of pleasing God. One theologian used to say this and has coined this phrase, there's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. That's a nice summary of what Jesus says, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and despise the other, or you'll hate the one and look down on the other. And so what we find here is genuine faith withholds nothing and thus sacrifices everything for God. Now, let's inspect the truth that genuine, genuine faith proclaims God's providence. Not only do we see genuine faith proceeds in obedience. That was the first step in verses 1 to 6. Genuine faith proceeds in obedience. What is God asking of you? As hard as it might be, are you willing to follow God in obedience even when you don't see the end result? Genuine faith, that is a faith that withholds nothing from God but is willing to sacrifice everything for Him. It always proceeds in obedience. But secondly... Secondly, genuine faith proclaims God's providence. Now this, I think, is, a, is one of the core sections of this chapter, verses 7 to 8. It's a clear dialogue between our two main characters. And so as we look at verses 7 and 8, I invite you to turn your attention again there. Uh, we find Abraham, he's brought the wood, he's laid it on Isaac, his son. So he's gotten to this part, it's been three days' journey. Three days. There's no dialogue or conversation that's recorded in the narrative. Doesn't mean they didn't talk, but, you know, let's face it, guys. We're not usually the ones that are gifted in communication, right? The ladies in our, our household, they're the gifted ones. So this is a, ladies, just so you know, this is a very common experience for guys on trips. to get in the car and drive six hours and say very little to each other. It doesn't mean we don't like each other. It just means we're, we're on a trip together. That's what we do, right? It's very very common, all right? And so we find very little, if any conversation happens between Abraham's two servants, Abraham and Isaac, at least it's not recorded for us. I mean, assume they had to talk about, hey, breakfast is ready, time to eat lunch. Hey, the donkey's tired, let's give him some water. But, you know, it's kind of mundane. And so here the text essentially says they've gotten to this destination. They're in the region of Moriah in the mountain. God is telling, has told Abraham apparently which mountain to to climb. By the way, we climbed 2,000 feet, 2,100 feet of elevation change yesterday, and let me tell you, it is not for the faint of heart. Um, and I felt bad for uh, Pastor Stephen, and um, actually Casey uh, helped supplement Pastor Stephen. Uh, Nate was in a, in a backpack. Uh, it was probably an extra 35 pounds of weight um, that was being transferred back and forth between Steve, Stephen and, and, um, and Casey. Um, so can you imagine, Abraham is well into his 120th, probably. He's between 116 and 120, okay? 
Uh, I'm 43, and it was tough. I was huffing and puffing, okay? I, I even had to use my inhaler because I, I have asthma, okay? Uh, you know, huffing and puffing up a steep incline. Abraham's nearly 120 years old. Isaac is a teenager, so of course Isaac gets the wood put on his back. But I, I do want to talk about that here as we look at the text. So we look at the text again. Abraham lays the wood of the burnt offering. They leave, they leave the, they, Abraham explains to his men, I want you to stay here. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to sacrifice my one and only beloved son as a burnt offering. He doesn't tell him that. It's not a need to know. He says, we're going to go worship. Now, don't you think the fact that he had wood and fire, they assumed that there was going to be a burnt offering of some kind? They also can reason logically like Isaac does in this situation. We have everything we need for a burnt offering, but there's no lamb. So how are we going to worship again? But here he goes. So Abraham took, took the wood, the burnt offering, he lays it on Isaac, his son. By the way, there's incredible symbolism here, which we'll talk about at the end of the sermon. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Look what happens in verse 7. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father. And he says, my father. And by the way, this is a, an extreme term of endearment. It's like saying daddy. Hey, um, lovable leader that has been my provider and protector my whole life. The one who's my best, best buddy. Um, dad, daddy. And what does Abraham say? Again, extreme term of endearment. Here I am. How did, God, how did Abraham respond to God? In respect and love. Here I am. How does he respond to Isaac? In respect and love. Here I am, my son. Term of endearment. Okay? He says, look. This is Isaac speaking. The fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the offering? Now, this is a rhetorical question. He knows the answer to this. He's not a silly, you know, adolescent child who doesn't understand the circumstance. He's a young man between the age of 16 and 20, and he knows dad's got the fire and the knife, and I'm carrying the wood. This is going to be a burnt offering, and we don't have a sacrifice. This is not normal. So, can you imagine now? In way of explanation and application here, Abraham's emotionally ridden utterance the next thing that happens, and he says, verse 8, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The verse doesn't end there. What's it say? Say it with me. Look at verse 8. What is the last phrase? Let's say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. So the two of them went together. I don't know about you, but if I were Isaac, I'm not sure I'd huff it up that mountain with wood on my back. You know what this tells me? This tells me that both Abraham understood and Isaac understood. This tells me that genuine faith means withholding nothing from God and sacrificing everything. This means that genuine faith proclaims God's providence. Abraham, in verse 8, proclaims to Isaac God's providence. What does he say? God will provide himself with a lamb. What does Isaac do? Hey, Dad, I can't see what you see, but I trust what you know. You know our God to be God, Olam, God the everlasting, eternal one, God the one who is always here, ever-loving, all-knowing, well, guess what? I don't see the same thing you see, Dad, but I love you, and I trust you. And so what do they do? They go up, one-minded, together. You see, faith trusts or proclaims God's providence. So as we think about this key here, we saw Abraham's faith rooted at the end of chapter 1 in God's character as he proclaimed his allegiance to this 
everlasting, unchanging, ever faithful, all loving, omniscient, omniscient character of our God. Now, that trust in God's nature is being tested to the extreme. Abraham's only son, Isaac, rightly identifies a real problem to the worship scenario unfolding before him, and Abraham's gut reaction is to proclaim the absolute sovereign providence of God. Abraham has a genuine faith that withholds nothing and thus sacrifices everything. And I would argue that Isaac has a genuine faith that withholds nothing and sacrifices everything. Isaac was marching to the top of that mountain knowing fully well unless God himself provided an actual lamb, he was going to be the sacrificial lamb. And instead of saying, no, dad, you're nuts, dropping the wood and fleeing for all of his might, he goes up together with dad. The New Testament writer of Hebrews sheds some light on this for us. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 19, the verses are on the screen behind. It says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And so what is Abraham doing? Um, Abraham concludes, Abraham concluded that God would actually resurrect Isaac from the dead. Isaac, his one and only son of promise, from whom all the nations of the earth will find blessing and from whom Abraham's seed would multiply exponentially, Isaac would be offered as a burnt offering and resurrected by God's mighty power. Although this is not actually what happened, as we see in the following verses, God provided an animal sacrifice which was a sufficient symbol of the replacement atonement. This, in essence, is what... Uh, Abraham believed God was capable of doing in his providence. He believed this was God, what God was capable of doing. So Christian, let me ask you this question today. Does your faith proclaim God's providence? Even when something is asked of you that is hard and you can't see the end, has your faith ever been tested to the limits like this? Have your life circumstances ever asked you to offer everything on the altar to God, withholding nothing? If so, what was your response? If not, will your response be like Abraham's? Because genuine faith withholds nothing and thus sacrifices everything for God. In essence, this is actually the sacrifice God asked of you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. He asked you to be a radical disciple or to enter into a radical discipleship relationship. In fact, Jesus picks up on this call in Luke's gospel when he teaches about radical abandonment of selfish ambition and worldly pursuits that saving faith elicits and requires. Look at Luke 9.62 on the screen behind. Luke 9.62, Jesus' own words. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Friend, when God fronted you by saying there is one way, one truth, and one life, there is one way to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is only one means of eternal life, one sacrifice, one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is Lord over all and has given us his one and only Son, for God so loved you, that he gave his one and only, only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did you take Christ and now are you looking back? I didn't realize that this Christian thing would be so complex. I didn't realize that coming to faith in Christ would require me to sacrifice things that I really want in this life. Oh friend, that's not genuine saving faith. Jesus further put it this way when talking about discipleship in Luke 14, 26 to 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let me pause there. You know I've preached on this before. This is the test uh, of people. 
okay? The idea that there's someone in your life that's keeping you from obeying God, someone that's more important. He's not saying that we should hate our parents or hate our siblings. That would be contrary to what Jesus commanded. He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this by this show, everyone in the entire world know that you are my followers, my disciples, if you love one another. So he's not calling us to hate. He's rather saying that our love for God will make our familial love look like hate. That's what he's saying. He's using, he's using hyperbole, okay? He goes on to say, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He is calling for radical abandonment, radical discipleship. Count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. How about this one, Luke 14, 33? So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Young man, young woman, middle-aged adult, senior saint, what are you withholding from God that is causing you to fail this faith test? Do you have grand plans for your life that don't include the abandonment Jesus is calling for? Do you think your way to pursue happiness is better than God's way? Do you think your time, your talent, your treasure will be better spent on worldly pursuits to receive worldly gain. My friend, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. God is calling you and me to a life of genuine faith in him. Do you so trust in him that you proclaim his providence? No matter how big my problem, God is bigger. <laughs> there was a, a season in our life of, we've had lots of seasons of life of trouble, actually, come to think about it. Uh, if I went through them all, it would sound like a sob story, and, and you know us. If you know Jen and I, you know we're, we try to be consummate optimist, okay? We, we try to be that way, not because we want that to be our testimony, but we know that our God is a consummate optimist, and in everything we are to give thanks. And so when we are in the midst of a trial, we are to, like James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. So I can't say we've always done that. But I remember one time in a season of, of real trouble in our heart, uh, in our family, um, I remember somehow somebody turned Jen on to some Southern gospel, silly, bluegrassy song, but it had a, had a really, really good message. God is bigger than all our problems, bigger than everything, right? You know that one, don't you? Yeah, Casey's, he's bebopping to it in, his, in, in the seat right now. Um, he's bigger than everything, right? There's nothing that is in my life that is bigger than God. There is no mountain that I cannot climb by the grace and mercy of God. There is no valley that I cannot walk through. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because my great God will never leave me or forsake me. Young person, maybe you're sitting in here today and you say, you know, I know God wants to use my life but I'm afraid God's gonna ask me to do something I'll hate. I've been there. I literally had that wrong view of God too. I remember thinking if I sell out to the mission field or sell out to God to go into ministry, I'm gonna to have to abandon my scholarship to Duke University to play baseball. I'm gonna to have to give up my aspirations perhaps maybe to uh, play professional sports to get an actual baseball card that somebody like me might collect and might collect dust in somebody's collection under a plate of glass one day. I might give up the aspirations to be on the big screen in the big show to uh, make the big plays and maybe even make it into the record books in history. And I remember that was a, that was a silly but difficult hurdle that a 17-year-old Ryan had to go through. But I'm going to tell you today, friend, 
I do not regret my decision to follow God. I never would have met any of you. Perhaps in God's providence, this church would have existed and somebody else would have gotten the blessing of planting it. I would have never seen the joys of 200 plus people that we've interacted with that have been members of Crossroad Baptist Church over the course of time and, and 91 people that have made professions of faith and 68 who've been baptized over the last 14 years, 15 years. What a joy it's been to obey God. Who cares if I have a paper cardboard picture of myself in a baseball uniform? Now, I would have looked pretty good, by the way, but you know, that, that being aside, you know I joke. Listen, do you trust in God so much that you are willing to say yes? Yes, God, I'll sacrifice everything. Yes, God, there is nothing in my life that is going to keep me from following you. I will withhold nothing. Like Job, came into this world naked. I'm going to return naked. I might as well give everything I got to God while I have a chance. You see, genuine faith in God, finally we see, withholds nothing to gain everything. Genuine faith finally withholds nothing to gain everything. When we follow the rest of this text in Genesis 22, 9 through 19, we hear the rest of the story, the Paul Harvey, as it were. You're welcome, you generation who remember Paul Harvey. For the rest of you, you're going to Google it immediately after. What? Paul Harvey? Who's that? Okay. As we look at the rest of the story here, as evidenced by verses 7 to 8 and highlighted in this section, there is another character in the story whose faith is being tested at this point, and his name is Isaac. Now, I've alluded to him already, and I've mentioned him, but as I said, he was likely around 18, between 16 and 20. His question to his beloved father was not of ignorance, but one of full understanding, as I've already established. He could have refused to carry the wood, refused to march up Mount Moriah, refused to help build the altar, refused to allow himself to be bound hand and foot and placed on the altar. He could have refused it all, but he went along willingly. His trust in God's providence from the word of his beloved father shows his genuine faith in God as well. This is a specific question to you young people. Do your parents often ask hard things of you that, you don't, seem, that don't seem to make logically, logical or worldly sense? And if you're honest, I'm sure you'd say yes. Yes, they do. My parents love God and they love me and sometimes they tell me that something isn't good for me and I really would like it to be good for me because I really want to do it because everybody else is doing it. And it would be really fun if I could do what everybody else is doing because the peer pressure is really strong. And if I don't do what everybody else is doing, I'll be considered a, nor a nerd, a geek, a dork, whatever you want to call yourself. You know, I will be an outcast, shamed, you know, whatever. I won't be part of the community of my friends, my friend group. But my parents are saying, don't do this. And I don't understand why. And they're not giving me a good explanation. So I'm just going to do what I want. Well, do you? Do you go along willingly because of the relationship of trust they built with you? Because of their genuine walk with the Lord? You see, it cuts both ways. Not only was Abraham a man who genuinely obeyed, who had genuine faith that obeyed immediately, not only was Abraham a man who proclaimed God's providence, not only was Abraham a man who, whose faith withheld nothing to gain everything, but I believe Isaac was too. Parents, yeah, you can't escape. I can't escape. I got, I got two in this adult range now where, you know, we got to give them some latitude. That's hard to do as parents. Are you building this genuine relationship with the Lord that generates true trust between you and your children? Are you? Would your parent, or would your child love you enough to say, I don't understand why you're saying no or asking me not to do this, but I'm gonna 
I'm going to trust you. If not, parent, grandparent, why not? Why not generate this level of love and trust? Why not show you're following the Lord yourself? Obviously, the point here, we're all sinners saved by grace. Okay, we're going to fail each other left and right. But, you know, failure means forgiveness and repentance and restoration of fellowship. You see, wait, I don't want to say that yet. (laughs) As we think about this reality, I wonder, are we building genuine relationships in our own household? How about in the family of faith? Are we encouraging one another? Are we like the author of Hebrews? In Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, we are refusing to forsake our fellowship here together at Crossroad so that we can gather together and we can poke and prod. That is a negative term. Provoke one another to what? Love and good works. Love for God and love for others that produces a visual work for the work of the Lord. That is, bearing one another's and so fulfilling the law of Christ, Galatians chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if, if a brother among you be overtaken in a fault, you spiritual ones, that's all of us, restore them in meekness and fear, lest you also be tempted. Are we in the restore, restoration business? We read it in Ephesians chapter 4 today that we are to jealously guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Are we an assembly that jealously guards our unity? Or are we assembly that bickers about personal preferences? That, that has infighting or people in the, in the group, well, we just don't like them. Well, there's, there's no room for carnality in God's church. God calls us to unity and love. That does mean that, you know, in the oil of the spirit, you know, what do you need to uh, make machinery work? Oil or grease, right? We have the oil of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes friction makes heat. So in in an assembly as large as this one, or as small as this one, whichever way you want to see, um, there will be friction sometimes between God's people. We will make a little heat. But guess what? We have the oil of the Holy Spirit. We can jealously guard it. We can cling to our love for God and love for others. We can approach, leave our gift at the altar, and go to the one who we've offended or who has offended us. And hopefully, in an ideal world, we'll bump into each other and say, hey, I'm really sorry. Will you please forgive me? Husbands, are you doing that regularly to your wives? Wives to your husbands, dads to your kids? I actually had to talk to my wife and my daughter this morning, ask them to forgive me for something before I even came to church. I couldn't get up in the pulpit and stand before you and preach a message unless I was right with my family. So as we look, I wonder, do we, like Paul, understand this truth? Paul calls us to this type of sacrificial choice in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I beg or I beseech, I plead with you, my brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a holy sacrifice or a living sacrifice, excuse me, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, this is interesting. He's literally using the same kind of terminology that we see in Genesis 22 about a burnt offering. He's saying, I want you to offer yourself up as a burnt offering, but I want you to do it so that you're living. Now, The truth is, there's no need for us to be a dead sacrifice because God's already sent his one and only son, Jesus, to be the dead sacrifice who came to life. And thus, when we give our life to Christ, we die in him and we're resurrected in him. And we're a new creation in Christ. So thus, we can now be a living sacrifice and not a dead one. And it is our reasonable service. The word here is logizomai. It means logical. Um, it could be a liturgical service of worship. It could be translated that way. In other words, it just makes sense that because God died for us, so we must live for him. It's our reasonable service. And do not be conformed. So what is our what does this living for Christ look like? It looks like refusing to be pressed into the mold of the world. This is the idea of a coin uh, being minted. You know, at, back then they would mint it with a hammer. Now we pour it into a U.S. mint, and you know it gets minted through machinery. But uh, not being conformed to pressed into the mold of the world, but being transformed. This is the uh, idea of metamorphosis, like a caterpillar to a butterfly or to a moth. Total transformation. From one thing to another, we are being transformed. How? How are we being transformed? 
through mind renewal. Thinking God's thoughts, taking God's words, memorizing, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, applying it to our lives so that we might prove God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. We might test God's will. God saw Abraham's faith in action and he responded accordingly. Twice. You see that in the text? Once by providing an animal sacrifice and once by renewing the promise he originally made to Abraham in chapters 12, 15, 18, and 21. That's what the story tells us. So Abraham's genuine faith produced genuine love for God and genuine measurable works for God's glory. That's exactly what James teaches us in James 2, 21 to 24, and it's on the screen behind me when James tells us about what Abraham did. Was not, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, what James is not saying is that you're saved by work. He's saying that your genuine saving faith will produce this kind of works, the kind of works that obeys immediately, that, uh, pro that proceeds in obedience, right? The kind of faith that proclaims God's providence and the kind of faith that here in our third point uh, withholds nothing to gain everything. This is the kind of faith Abraham and Isaac displayed, proceeding obediently, uh, proclaiming God's providence, and withholding nothing from God to gain everything for God. This is the kind of genuine faith that we're to have. Now, ultimately, the narrative of Abraham and Isaac is yet another type or symbol uh, in Genesis pointing to God's loving means of atonement for the sins of mankind, okay? What we see is God's one and only son, Jesus, would willingly lay aside the glory of heaven for a season. He would submit in humility and obedience to the cruel death on the cross as the hand, at the hands, not as, at the hands of his own creation. Just like Isaac, Abraham's one and only son, who took up the wood of his cross. So Jesus, God's one and only son, would literally carry his cross to the place of the skull. By the way, you, you want to know where, um, where this sacrifice was supposedly made? Mount Moriah. The place of the skull, the place of sacrifice, the place of death, the highest point uh, in Israel where God would offer his one and only son. Isaac was a type of Jesus. Isaac bore the wood for the sacrifice. Jesus bore the wood of the cross. Jesus laid himself out in humility and obedience. He willingly went to his death so that God would pour out on him all of the wrath for all sin, for all man, for all time, so that whosoever will may come to God and find mercy and help through Jesus Christ, our sympathetic high priest. You see, this story is a type of the Messiah, the Savior to come. God's one and only Son would then rise from the dead and conquer sin and its consequences for all who call on him in genuine saving faith. Jesus is the quintessential Isaac. Or Isaac is the quintessential Jesus. Uh, no, I had it right the first time. Will you trust in Jesus today? You see, genuine faith withholds nothing and thus sacrifices everything for God. So in conclusion, today we saw three characteristics of genuine faith the text reveals. Genuine faith proceeds obediently. Genuine faith proclaims God's providence. Genuine faith withholds nothing to gain everything. Abraham passed the test. Isaac passed the test. Both of them were willing to withhold nothing to gain everything. His example, their example, shines for every generation as men whose faith was tested, refined, purified, and golden for us to emulate. So how about your faith today, friends? Are you willing to be the living sacrifice that God requires? Are you willing to give everything for the cause of Christ?
Um, there's a quote by Jim Elliott that says as much. I didn't write it down, so I'm not, I don't want to misquote it. As you know, Jim went to the Aka Indians in Ecuador and at the point of a spear, gave up everything, gave up his life. And eventually Jim's family and friends, his wife would come back to those very natives that murdered him and would lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a thriving church in Ecuador today among the Aka, native Aka Indians because Jim Elliott was willing to go to his death so that someone could have eternal life. Friends, Jesus went to his death so that you can have eternal life. What is God calling you to sacrifice? What is God calling you to do? What is God giving you in way of uh, service and ministry opportunity in this life? What's keeping you from sacrificing everything to gain everything today? Father, we thank you.